Now, our first witness this morning is Butch. Well, when the fight broke out, I got stabbed in the back, and I, I pulled my knife and hit him. That was the first person I ever killed. Butch Crouch was a hell's angel who'd murdered people and then rolled over and became a government witness. He was giving up details of this crime only somebody that was there would have known about. What good's a man? In his right hand, he had an automatic handgun and blood over his chest. What exactly happened here? Two people were murdered. A house was set on fire. Because of Crouch, I've been hiding in the witness protection program for most of my life. But I'm done hiding. From C-13 Originals, a division of Cadence 13, welcome to Relative Unknown, a new podcast about the stories and family we can't escape. Download Relative Unknown for free now on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to Season 3 of What Really Happened. Executive produced by Seven Bucks Productions, Dwayne Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Brian Gewertz in association with Cadence 13. It's written and hosted by me, Andrew Jenks, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Andrew Jenks. You can also become a contributor to the show by going to jenkspod.com slash contributors. Imagine you're 29 years old. You make a friend. The relationship develops quickly. You get to hanging out quite a bit. But imagine... That friend isn't who they say they are. And you're left wondering, what really happened? My name is Rachel Deloach Williams. I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. I am the oldest of three kids. My parents are both clinical psychologists. I played soccer my whole life. I don't know. I used to be really into arts and crafts. I don't know. I had a really like happy, like relatively, I I guess I don't know if it's normal, but it was my childhood. Yeah. I had really like loving, supportive parents. I, I think I was very lucky in my childhood. I went to Kenyon College in Gambier, Ohio, which is midway ish between Cleveland and Columbus, kind of in the middle of nowhere. I was a photo editor at Vanity Fair. I got my job at Vanity Fair through a combination of hard work and dumb luck, I would say. I I knew I wanted to intern there when I was in college, so I had actually picked someone's name off the masthead and sent her an email out of the blue. Just I didn't end up getting the internship. I was a little late and they were already full, but um, after I graduated, I was put in touch with somebody for what's called an informational interview where you just go in and get to ask questions. I wasn't even really applying for a job, but I was persistent at following up with the person I had met with. And it just so happened a job had opened up with the person I had emailed out of the blue a year prior. And and her name's Catherine McLeod. She remembered my correspondence. And so I quickly got an, an interview for that position. And then was I started the next day. I was very serendipitous, but I, I was just very persistent. I was 28 when I first met Anna. I met her just out one night with some girls who I knew who lived in the city. A lot of them worked in fashion and PR. Um, and we were out for dinner and drinks, and she already knew some of the other people in the group. Over the course of 2016 through the summer, she became a part of that group of, of girls that I would see mostly just when I went out weekends or something. Um, they were a very social bunch. Not my closest friends, but girls I enjoyed spending time with. And Anna became just a, a part of that. 
I didn't know her very well in 2016. She then left at the end of that year because she needed to reset her visa because she wasn't a U.S. citizen. She came back in February of 2017, and that's when she and I became closer friends. I had recently broken up with a long-term boyfriend. A lot of my friends had moved out of Manhattan to Brooklyn or out of the city altogether. Some were married, some were having kids. I was newly single, like wanting to go out, you know, at that part when you're like coming out of the winter, coming out of your cocoon, ready to like, you know, have some fun. And here's this girl who I knew who checks into a hotel called Eleven Howard, which is like in between my apartment and my job downtown. So it was very convenient. And she's automatically texting me every day, wanting to hang out and and I enjoyed spending time with her so we fell into a very fast friendship we would often get dinner and drinks in her hotel she didn't actually really like to leave her hotel very often she lived a lifestyle that was very different than mine she for instance lived in hotels full-time she was working on this art foundation um, which she was going to call the Anna Delvey Foundation to house like gallery space restaurants bars members only clubs like all sorts of different things which sounded really interesting so we spent a lot of time together talking about her plans for that it was nice to have a friend who didn't keep normal office hours so she was very available whereas a lot of my other friends it was hard to make commitments because everybody worked really long hours So I'd say like during that period, those, it was like a little over two months. She and I spent a lot of time together. She also invited me to work out with her with a personal trainer that she had arranged to go to this celebrity personal trainer that she'd researched. And I think, well, she said she was into her because she had trained Dakota Johnson for one of the Fifty Shades of Grey movies. Uh, she, she could be very generous, but I think part of that was her playing this character of Anna Delvey, who, who was in a position to be generous. I thought she was living off of a trust fund. I just thought that she came from family money. I just didn't pry. Like, finances were always something that was private as far as I was concerned. I just, you know, that was the baseline of my understanding as to how she could live in a hotel and how she could be trying to create something so grand as an art foundation. She told me that her parents worked in solar energy. I thought that was a euphemism for maybe working in oil. Like, because it was energy-related in my head, I I didn't pry, but I I kind of thought, well, maybe, like, that's probably a part of what they do, but, like, that was as dark as my suspicions went. She was very convincing. She was very convincing at playing this character um, that was Anna Delvey. And I think she was inherently lonely. I, 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 you know, I knew that even at the time. I, I, I chalked up some of that to, to immaturity because she could be kind of insensitive. And I think that pushed away a lot of, like, for instance, the girls through whom I met her didn't hang out with her in 2017. She was really kind of alone. I thought I was her only friend and I felt, you know, that I was going to be there for her because I, you know, I liked her. And I, she really like played up to this big sister impulse, I think, that I have. She would ask me, you know, she was, I think, three years younger than me. She would ask me for advice, whether it was like with her foundation about, you know, do you like this logo? Do you think this would be a cool pairing between an artist and a chef? Or what do you think of this video to, you know, social advice? And I I saw her as being young, but trying really hard to like to grow. I think part of what in Anna appealed to me is the boyfriend I had been with, he's older than me. I worked at Vanity Fair for six years when I met Anna. That skew's also slightly older. A lot of the people I spent most of my time with were older than me. And I think, you know, coming out of that, like that phase, 
I liked how young Anna felt, for instance, teaching me about Action Bronson or like Kodak Black or whatever it is. It's like a part of the culture that I was interested in, but had gotten kind of disconnected from. And I think she kind of pushed me back in that direction to some extent and, and, and would show me YouTube videos that I wouldn't know about or like, I, I mean, it, it's not terribly profound, but I think that's what appealed to me at that moment in time was kind of plugging back into this part of the culture that I'd, I'd become uh, kind of distant from. So Anna, I think it was in April, she's looking ahead. I think it was in May when she needed to leave to again reset her ESTA visa, the visa that would allow her to stay in the United States for three months at a time. And instead of going back to Cologne, Germany, where she said she was from, she wanted to take a trip to somewhere warm. And she proposed we take a vacation, which was exciting to me. I hadn't taken a vacation with friends. And as long as I could remember, I'd travel with my family sometimes. But And it just, the timing worked out. I was traveling for work that spring anyway. I was going to tack this on. It just, the stars aligned. And she quickly kind of evolved it from this vacation idea into this, oh, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to begin this documentary about the creation of my art foundation. And within a week's time, you know, one day she's suggesting the vacation. One week later, she's picked the most expensive hotel basically in the world and has booked a private villa and is asking me, who else should we invite? So it escalated very quickly from this like, you know, collaborative research vacation idea into I've booked a private villa at La Mamunia. She wants to invite a videographer because she obviously needs footage. Just to jump in and say this, I realize it doesn't make any sense to begin a documentary about the creation of an art foundation that's based in Manhattan in Morocco. I realized that at the time, but I kind of was just being supportive as a friend thinking, all right, well, like she, she wanted to see what it was like to have cameras around. She, you know, maybe she was doing like some sort of food and beverage research while she was in Morocco. Maybe she was looking at hospitality industry things like I could rationalize the the choice and try to be supportive of how she wanted to spend her money, like far be it for me to question that. Because also my job is to produce complex photo shoots. I'm used to dealing with eccentric personalities and moving logistics and, you know, travel and hotels. Like I kind of got sucked into this default role of producer slash like sort of weird assistant because that's my nature, like just to take care of people. Then also it was my job. So it was like a very fast like transition from simply friend to like someone who was dealing with a lot of the, the back end logistics, which came full circle to kind of bite me because then the day we're supposed to leave and the flights aren't booked and everyone's texting me, the personal trainer who's Anna's invited and the videographer, because I've become kind of this like Anna whisperer. Um, and she's very aloof. She, it's hard to get clear answers from her. And, and I don't say that in like a, oh, it was a huge red flag kind of way. I mean it as like, it was a part of her character. It wasn't unusual. It was just who she was. But I had seen her, you know, she was living full-time in hotels in New York. She was actually taking all of these business meetings. She, you know, there were enough things that I had seen firsthand that I didn't feel I had reason, you know, there was no reason for me to question who she was at that moment in time or to be overly alarmed by her behavior. I think partially because like I said, it was in my job to deal with people like that and, and travel like that. So I think I didn't bulk where maybe some other people would have. Anyway, so I ended up 
helping her to book the tickets the day we were supposed to leave. And she gave me, a, she texted me a picture of her credit card, which didn't go through. So of course I was like, oh, should I just use mine and you pay me back? And she said, yeah, if that's okay for you, I'll wire you, you know, on Monday. So that's that's how it started, the, the pattern that would intensify of her owing me money. So I, I used my credit card. We made it out. We, you know, had a six-hour layover in Lisbon because I booked the cheapest flights possible. But we arrived in Marrakesh and the hotel was real. Like, it was all really booked. We had a VIP car service take us to this palace, so this, like, walled-in resort that was unlike anything I'd ever seen. So we get there and we're shown through the hotel. There are like four restaurants, four bars, like a huge like lakeside swimming pool, sprawling gardens. We we take this grand tour. There's no like normal check-in procedure where you give your like credit card and like get a key because we have a butler who lets us into the rooms. I have no reason to think anything is amiss. And, you know, we get to our villa and it's this little house with three bedrooms and, and a nice butler named Adid who's like gets you anything you want and you know it was great I like Morocco was a lot of fun until it wasn't in Marrakesh Morocco Rachel sees parts of Anna she wasn't as aware of in New York Anna is particularly arrogant and rude towards others, specifically the hotel staff. Rachel also wanted to travel around and see Morocco while Anna was content lounging by the pool. But Rachel wasn't going to say anything. She was a guest of Anna's, and regardless, this would be small potatoes compared to what is about to happen. Hotel management needed someone to put their credit card down for payment. Anna's credit card wasn't working. Rachel assumes it's because it's a large amount in a foreign country, so it seems simple. Anna just needs to make some phone calls and it should be taken care of. Well, hours go by and nothing changes. Hotel management gets more aggressive. They need a working credit card on file. They won't let them do anything until a card is put down, even if it's just to be put on hold. So Rachel is asked to do so, and there really isn't any other option. More time in Morocco goes by, and Anna's card still doesn't work. So Rachel starts to think maybe Anna has some sort of monthly allowance from her parents. Who knows how these trust funds work? Rachel thinks maybe Anna spent it already, particularly after she booked a private jet to use the following month to go to a conference held by Warren Buffett. You really can't make this stuff up. Either way, Rachel has to leave a day early from vacation to get back to work. The day after leaving, she gets a text from Anna. The entire trip was put on Rachel's credit cards, a combination of her work credit card and personal credit card, a total of over $60,000. Rachel can't believe it, a trip worth more than Rachel makes in a year. Despite wanting some distance from Anna, Rachel actually feels grateful for the trip and believes, as promised, Anna will pay Rachel back in the coming days. So I wanted to pull back from the friendship, but I still believed she was who she said she was. And then I think it would have been simpler had she just disappeared, but she didn't. She kept in touch with me every day, pretending that this wire transfer was on the way. 
at first, I just kind of kept stifling my anxiety about it, telling myself that it would be resolved quickly, that the wire would come through and then it would be over. I didn't tell anybody. I just thought, you know, this is going to get fixed quick. It quickly, it's, it's private, it's financial. It's kind of embarrassing for Anna that she let this happen. Um, so I, I, I just tried to like downplay, um, the stress, but then as it, didn't get resolved quickly. And, you know, my rent's due. I'm starting to get phone calls from Amex because I have these extremely high balances. So the anxiety started to eat at me more and more the longer it went without reimbursement appearing, as Anna kept promising. I ended up telling my my boyfriend who I had gotten back together with, and he had to loan me money to pay my rent. I kept telling American Express the same thing Anna was telling me, which is, oh, it should be any day now. It should be any day. I started to have recurring panic attacks. I wasn't really sleeping. I would wake up at, you know, 3, 4 a.m., constantly texting with Anna, constantly texting with her, you know, about why, you know, what what is the delay? Why is there a delay? What can I do to help? Can you send me a wire transfer number so I can compare it with my bank so I can stop asking you questions? And she just had so many excuses. She would, you know, lawyers were needing something from her bankers who needed something from her parents who needed something from the IRS. Like it just, it was such an elaborate set of lies and, and the goalpost kept moving. Like, you know, she she would then give me fake wire transfer numbers. So, I, you know, every time she did that, I would buy like 48 hours or so because you think, well, maybe it just takes time for it to appear. And then she would say like, oh, like there was an issue, the Anna Delvey Foundation, I didn't realize I needed to pay taxes. So the IRS froze my accounts, but I should be resolved now. But she would give you just enough information that you would kind of wrap your head around it and be like, okay, I like, like it kind of makes sense. But time went on and obviously the wire didn't arrive. So I ended up maintaining contact with Anna, but starting to ask questions um, very carefully. Uh of people who she also knew, like the people who I'd met her through and other people who may have loaned her money. I started to kind of quietly ask around, like, what's her deal? I ended up meeting with someone who said he had known her family or, or like had had loaned her money and had to threaten to reach her father to get it back. And and he said that she, what, her dad was like some Russian billionaire who brought oil from Russia to Germany just basically told me a story that he'd obviously gotten from Anna, but the way he said it made me feel like it was factual. So I think that threw a wrench in my gears for a long time because I kept falling back on that as well. You know, she has the safety net, like she should be able to get help. So I thought she was having some kind of like a psychotic break. I like, so I was trying to be firm, but also understanding that this is someone who's having a problem. Eventually I, I got up the gall to to contact lawyers and even when I did that I like told Anna I was like Anna I don't want to do this but if you can't you know follow through I like I have no choice I'm really I, I was apologizing to her I was like I'm really sorry but I just don't see another alternative and and she was just like okay I had some like limited legal coverage through my employment at Connie Nast so I like had consultations with uh, a few lawyers but the first one I I called like when I finally called him and he finally called me back he was like he listened to my little like elevator pitch version of the story and was like did you learn your lesson I was like excuse me he goes do you want to pay for my son's med school too 
He was just really, really patronizing and dismissive and rude. Um, and that was really demoralizing because it had taken a lot for me to get to that point. So I kind of had to shelf the lawyers for a bit. But by the time I did go back to explore that, I realized, okay, Anna's not a U.S. citizen. I know when she's gotten back from Morocco. So I know that in three months time, she's going to need to leave again. And so the first step, if I were going to sue her, would be to send a demand letter saying, like, you owe me this amount of money for this, it was due on this date, whatever. She has 30 days legally to contest the debt. And within those 30 days, her visa would have expired again. So she might have left and gone to Germany or, you know, wherever, which would mean I then would have to follow her to file suit, which would then mean my expenses might exceed the balance of what she owed me. And even then, there seemed like there was a collections issue because she wasn't able to access the money for some reason. So I was worried I was going to just dig myself into a deeper hole. I didn't tell very many people, like people at work didn't know, my parents didn't know. Um, Mostly, it's not that I was embarrassed. I think people's first reaction to that is, oh, because you were embarrassed. And that's not really what it was. Like, you know, in my mind, I hadn't done anything wrong. I just couldn't understand what was happening. And it was taking me so much energy to get through every day and to keep thinking about what to do. I just didn't have the energy to spare to tell anyone and to, like, it's kind of like when once you say something out loud, it becomes more real in a way. And like, especially if I had told my parents, like, can you, like, they live in Tennessee. Can you imagine getting a phone call from your daughter saying like, okay, so this girl owes me $62,000. Like my mom would have sold, my parents would have sold like, half the house or like our front yard or like even though I would have told them not to and then they would have wanted to know like they would have wanted to come like it to New York like I it and then I would be worried about how they were feeling in addition to how I was feeling like I just I couldn't handle it and I couldn't handle needing to update them I like with everything I was trying because I could barely do it let alone then have to like I've tried this and then this happened and then, like it just was it was too much I just had to keep moving um, but I, I'd say I, I hit my first real low point. Um, it's like one of the first times I think I said out loud, like, what if she never pays me back? It was just this night I was at my my boyfriend Nick's apartment, and I just remember having a complete panic attack on his couch, just unable to breathe. And I was just, you know, focusing on this the immensity of the debt and just thinking like, you know, in my job at Vanity Fair, I loved my job, but I wasn't making enough, barely, I was barely making enough to break even. I certainly wasn't saving anything. I didn't have any savings. So I I think people hear Vanity Fair and they think, oh, like she's this moneyed editor. Like that's not the reality of publishing, or at least wasn't the reality for me. Like that's what certainly more than I made in a year and I, you know I don't I don't I come from privilege I think there's a difference between wealth and privilege like yes I have like loving parents I got to go to a great school like I'm okay like I I'm also like white young female like living in New York City like yeah like there are a lot of things that I am privileged to have in my life and I'm very aware of that but it doesn't the idea that I was going to then have to pay off this enormous debt, you know, even if I borrowed it from a family friend or whatever, it's like I would always have to pay that money back somewhere. So I just remember like heaving and just saying like, well, I'm never going to get to be an adult. I'll never have a house. I'm never going to have kids. Like I like I can never dig myself out of this hole. Like I just don't, I don't make enough. I, I, I can't. Like it still makes me like kind of catch my breath a little. Uh, so that that was really hard. 
Yeah. And then I think having to keep retelling the story to American Express on the phone every time, like, because I ended up contesting the debt eventually, they'd get declined. So I'd have to then talk to another, like, representative who'd pass me off to another representative and I'd have to just keep explaining. And I kept having panic attacks on the, like while I was on the phone, like dra- they were, they couldn't have been nicer. Every like, what are you going to do? You're on the phone with this like girl who's like telling you this insane story and is like clearly having a panic attack. They're all like, it's going to be okay. Like calm down. Like, so they're very nice, but it was, it was a lot. The stress was really hard. I think I'm just, like remembering that like that part of the experience is very hard. It's hard to recount that part of the experience without the emotion. Like trying to explain to somebody else what it was like. It's very hard to put it just in words. Like I can't separate the words of the experience from the emotion of the experience because it's definitely all blended together. The lawyer's thing got shelved. Um went to my friend Dave for advice. He suggested I try to get a hold of the detective unit at the New York Police Department, um, thinking that they would find this interesting and, and might have the time and resources to actually investigate it properly. I was excited to have a plan. It was something that felt concrete. So I spent this evening putting together this black binder of evidence. I like made this folder on my computer called Operation Clarity. It just, it was helping me to feel productive and and to focus on what was concrete and what I had, like what might be useful to figure out what was happening. So I, I, you know, made this folder and then I printed every text message we'd exchanged, every email we'd exchanged, the copy of her passport I had from booking the flights, the copy of her credit card. Like again, producer brain, I was very organized. I had little like white dividers. I like, I felt like, you know, ready, proactive, good, like better to have a plan. So the next day I walked into the NYPD police headquarters with my little binder and I was like, I need to speak to a detective. And they were like, do you have a police report? And I was like, no, I do not. So they told me I had to go to a local precinct. So I, so I, I walk to Chinatown I go into a precinct and they ask you, what, what can we do for you? And there's, you know, you stand there and you're like, well, here, like, I just had to tell the story as succinctly as possible to this, you know, cop. And as I'm telling it, another cop comes over and then a third cop. And they're sort of like handing me off. And finally, I'm telling this lieutenant who listens to the story. The binder is still in my backpack. And I'm like, you know, here's this crazy thing. And she owes me this much money. And, and he's like, well, since it happened in Morocco, there's nothing we can do. There's a jurisdictional issue. And I, I was like, yeah, but it, like, you're missing the big picture, you know. Surely there's something, you know, she, I, I knew her, I knew her here. We live here. Like the, the trip was planned here. He's like, no, like, but with your face, you could start a GoFundMe page to get your money back. Just very, you know, I, I don't think he's bad. I think he was trying to help me, but it was extremely dismissive and patronizing. And the police had always been my last resort. You know, it took a lot for me to, you know, have, tell the authorities about this girl who used to be my friend, who I think is having a breakdown, um, thinking also, I thought she might get arrested and deported, which would definitely mean I wouldn't get my money back in my mind. Over the course of about two months, Anna continues to delay paying back Rachel. So finally, a intervention of sorts is planned. Rachel will join a private trainer who Anna had been using and had also invited to Marrakesh. This private trainer will also bring a friend. The three of them sit down with Anna at a bar and ask what is going on. Why can't Anna pay Rachel back? Why is she acting so aloof? 
It was the longest, sort of, most circuitous, not professional interrogation ever. We, you know, especially the trainer and the trainer's friend just kept pushing Anna for for truth, for answers. I was a little more quiet and I think a little more emotional because I'd been doing this for two months, you know. I'd asked her everything I could think to ask. I was kind of just watching her react to the accusations and the questions. You know, there was a point where someone yelled at her like, you're a Russian con artist. And Anna's reaction is so telling. I think her reaction was, what makes you say I'm Russian? It wasn't like, why do you think I'm a con? It was, she just had, she had such a way of deflect. Like, again, that's not answering the question. Well, it is kind of, but she she would deflect things. So every time you ask her a question, she would ask you a question back or she would spin it. So you're the one talking instead of her. She just had an answer for everything. And her emotional reactions were so different than what I think a, a normal you know person's would be. She wasn't, she wasn't really incredulous. She wasn't, she certainly wasn't remorseful. She just sort of, it felt like she'd done it before. It felt like she had an answer for everything. So that's when I think the the final shoe fell. Because, because of my Operation Clarity, I was, I, going through this was so destabilizing. It felt like my world was turning upside down, like very quickly and, and very inexplicably. So I was really focused on getting tangible information that I could continue to pick apart. So going into this quote unquote intervention, I decided to tape record it because the way Anna spoke, she would say things and it would just break your brain because she would just string together like, you know, the wire is in or like oh god like my i can't even repeat it because it doesn't make any logical sense but you would you would hear these strings of words and and, and you'd sit there trying to make sense of them and you you would know they wouldn't make sense but you you couldn't remember them i needed to have a do, like recording of it so that i could then try to pick it apart and figure out like what can i investigate from this that might lead me to some just like tangible truths the day of the intervention is the day that it broke in the New York Post and the New York Daily News that Anna had stiffed some New York hotels after Morocco, like the Beekman, the Parker Meridian, and the W downtown, I think. Um, she hadn't paid them for her hotel stays. And the New York Post had called her a wannabe socialite, skipping out on hotel bills. And Anna was distraught about the way that she was being portrayed. She was like, ah, you know, I'm not out partying. I'm, I, I want to be, she wanted to be taken seriously so badly. And she wasn't out partying. <laughs> That's, that part is true. Um, but the, the fact that she was upset about her image when, you know, my life was really falling apart, I think it's really indicative of, of how desensitized she is to the way that her behavior affects those around her. She couldn't she couldn't understand the difference between the turmoil in her life and the turmoil in my life. She didn't see how that was different. So the day after that is when I ended up emailing the New York District Attorney's office and you know linked to the New York Post article and was like, "I think this girl's a con artist. I have information. Can I please come in?" And very quickly I got a phone call and and went I went down to the DA's office and gave them my binder and then, you know, I, I learned that Anna was the subject of an ongoing criminal investigation and having that information, you know, it was in many ways the worst case scenario to learn that this person really doesn't have anything and that she's a con artist. Um, but it was also the first thing that explained everything, you know, to have that, like, something fall into place and actually make sense was in some ways 
it gave me a, some degree of closure, although I then had to figure out how to move forward from there. And that's also, it was, I think, the next day that I started to write because I, learning that this person I'd spent so much time with wasn't at all what I believed her to be really rocked my world. It, it, it sent me spiraling backwards because I thought, what do I know and what was really happening and what, what do I have that might be useful for the investigation? So, I, you know, I was drowning in my memories. I couldn't barely see what was in front of me, so I needed to get them out of my head and onto paper so I could continue to move forward and to give the police everything I had or the DA's office so that, you know, Maybe I could help with their investigation. So I'm working on next week's episode about Malaysia Airlines Flight 370. There's a lot of options as to what happened, and I'm talking to aviation experts, so I got to know my stuff. In between studying up on the history of hypoxia on airplanes and what an aileron's main function is, I took a quick break to play... Best Fiends. Best Fiends is a casual game anyone can play. It's made for adults, though. It has a unique and exciting puzzle experience, unlike other puzzle games out there. Best Fiends also updates the game monthly with new levels and events, so it really never gets old, and it doesn't require the internet to play. So I can play this on the subway, uh, really wherever. You can engage your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters, Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. So I go to the DA's office in August, testify before a grand jury. Anna had these misdemeanor charges from stuffing the New York hotels after Morocco, and she was supposed to show up in court on September the 5th of 2017. These dates are just burned into my brain. Um, She was indicted before that date. So it's my guess that when Anna showed up in court, she was going to be arrested and arraigned for the felony charges as well. Except that on September 5th, Anna didn't show up. She didn't show up in court. She skipped her court date. And that's when the NYPD and the DA's office called me and asked if I were to text her whether or not she'd respond. So they asked me if I can help figure out where she's gone because she skipped court. So I end up having to resume communication with her via text message. Like I never shut down that communication channel, even as I was like going to the police and seeking these alternative resolutions. I didn't see any, you know, there was no reason to do that. I mean, again, producer thinking is like have as many balls in the air as you can until something like productive falls into place so I'm thinking all right there's no reason for me to like burn that bridge I you know I'd rather know where she is and be able to contact her than to say like never call me again and block her number like she owes me so much money so I end up needing to 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 figure out like you know how did your court date go like I'm sorry you're in this situation you know I tried to say as much that was true as I could I I meant what I said you know I was like I'm sorry this happened however you got into this mess I, I don't think you meant for it to turn out this way like I had to kind of rebuild the trust she was actually mad at me at that point in time because she heard I'd been asking questions about her which just goes to show you how backwards I think some of her thinking is when you remember that she owes me so much money but I figure out that she's gone to California. She tells me she's in a hospital. She doesn't, you know, I ask her like 30 questions for everyone that she answers. Finally, I figure out that she's checked into a, a rehab in Malibu. And I was actually supposed to go to, to the West Coast for work 
that October, and she knew that because she'd been planning to go to this conference I was attending with Vanity Fair. So she asked if we could get together while I was in town. And, you know, everything she said back to me, I was reporting back to the NYPD. And I ended up setting up a, a lunch at Jones on 3rd. Of course, neither of us went to Jones on 3rd, but she ended up getting arrested as she left rehab to go to that lunch. I don't know why she was in rehab, whether or not it was actually for an addiction. Either way, it's actually kind of an ingenious place to hide out because because of healthcare privacy regulations, the law enforcement can't just waltz in and find out if someone's there because the facility is under no obligation to tell you if, if a specific patient is in residence, nor, nor do they let the law enforcement just you know, go into the property. So we had to get her out. And that, that part was very challenging for me to sort of betray the, the trust in our friendship. It felt very unnatural and hard and heavy. You know, for, for a long time, I was driven by this need to, to solve the riddle, to figure out what was real and, and to sort of turn my world back right side up and to just get answers. Um, but as I got closer to, to having this person I had known, you know, being arrested and maybe incarcerated... I began, you know, I, I took that really seriously. Like, I couldn't figure out, like, well, it's not going to bring my money back. What is it going to help? It's not going to reverse time. Like, the damage has been done. But ultimately, I decided, having known her as I did and having been such, like, a friend to her, the fact that she still did this to me made me feel like she would do it to anybody. And I just felt this, this compulsion to protect other people. Because, I, you know, I didn't know what she was capable of. There was so much I didn't know. So I was motivated by fear at that point. The money is certainly an important part of this story, and I think it's the fulcrum on which sort of the whole like friendship and the and the betrayal sort of tipped. But what was I think equally as painful is is sort of the emotional impact of of the stress of the finances, but then also the stress of having been betrayed by someone I thought I knew who turned out to be completely, you know, fake. On October 3rd, 2017, Anna was arrested and charged with grand larceny. She was offered a plea deal that would have released her from jail and deported her back to Germany. But she denied the plea deal and went to trial. Ultimately, Anna was convicted of attempted grand larceny, theft of services, and larceny in the second degree. In May 2019, she was sentenced to four to 12 years in prison fined $24,000, and ordered to pay restitution of almost $200,000. According to the New York Times, she faces deportation once she is released. The Times added, Miss Sorkin, that's Anna, stiffed hotels, persuaded a bank employee to give her a $100,000 line of credit, swayed a private jet company to let her fly on credit, and tried to secure a $25 million loan from a hedge fund. The Marrakesh trip cost Rachel over $50,000. Anna was acquitted of stealing from Rachel, but Amex did end up forgiving the over 50 k While they won't comment publicly, it seems Amex did realize the conditions under which Rachel was in when she handed over her Amex in Marrakesh. The hotel managers had effectively prevented her or Anna from exiting until a credit card was put down. She was also told by the hotel staff that there would not be a credit card charge. During the trial, Anna wore designer outfits and somehow had a stylist. At one point, there was a two-hour delay in the trial because Anna had concerns about her wardrobe. 
some of Anna's actual backstory. As it turns out, her father wasn't in solar energy or an oil tycoon. He was a truck driver. Her mom owned a convenience store before becoming a stay-at-home mom. While Anna wasn't German, as she had said, her family did move to Germany in 2007 when Anna was 16. Anna graduated high school and in 2011 moved to London to attend art school, but she didn't graduate. Instead, she moved to Paris to work as an intern for the French magazine Purple. It seems that during this time, she started to take on this fake alternative person. She changed her name from Anna Sorkin to Anna Delvey. When she moved to New York City about three years later, in 2014, she really had a new narrative. She claimed to have a trust fund worth somewhere around 60 million euros. Her father was now a diplomat or oil executive or solar panel magnet, depending on who you asked. She either befriended or was photographed with individuals tied to New York's social scene. After the story got national attention, Netflix ordered a show based on an article which was written about Anna. The deal included Anna receiving $70,000, plus a 15 k per episode consulting fee and 7500 per episode royalty fee should the show go to series. In July, a judge temporarily ordered Netflix not to disperse the money, citing the Son of Sam law, which prevents felons from profiting from their crimes. After speaking with Rachel about her story for over 90 minutes, I obviously had some follow-up questions, especially seeing as she's now had more time to think about what happened. Do you, do you think that, just looking back on this whole thing, do you think that you guys were ever... How do you think she saw you? I think my friendship was useful to Anna. Um, I, I think there are elements of it that were real. Like, I think we actually had fun together. I think she liked me. I liked her. I think the friendship was a real friendship. It's just, that said, I, I do think the fact that I worked at Vanity Fair gave her a degree of credibility by association. So she'd say to business people, you should meet my friend Rachel. She works at Vanity Fair. And because of that association, they took her more seriously, just like she might say to me, you should meet my friend Spencer. He works at Fortress Hedge Fund. And the association subconsciously would would validate her business efforts to me. Um, I also think that temperamentally, if that's a word, I, I think that we balanced each other out because she could be kind of hard to read. Uh, she she was very brash in, in some of her behavior. She could be a little rude. And I think I sort of balanced that out by apologizing on her behalf or laughing off things that might have been offensive, sort of, oh, that's just Anna. Um, and, I, and I think that was probably also useful. I think she also, like I said, was really lonely. I think she because of her her lack of empathy and her her sort of insensitivity, I think she isolated herself. And I think she liked having a friend who wanted to spend time with her. And I certainly was that. So, I, you know, I don't think I was a financial mark necessarily because I, I certainly didn't know that I could front someone that much money. That was a shock to me too. But at the same time, she... She always knew she wasn't going to be the one paying for that trip. And the second she gave me a non-functioning credit card to book our flights, I think that's when the intention formed to sort of start boxing me in, you know? It was never going to be her. So I think that's, um, yeah, where things took a criminal turn. 
Do you think she and her, uh, um, maybe this is speculating too much, but that she, did she see that this foundation, did she believe that this foundation would one day become a real thing or? Yeah, I think Anna did. I think she, like her lawyer said during the trial, she was to some degree trying to fake it till she could make it. I think she was desperate to be taken seriously. And I think she did really want to accomplish this thing that she thought would give her some sort of credibility. That said, I don't know if, you know, were she to accomplish it, if, if she ever, it would have been enough for her, if she ever would have stopped sort of manipulating people and things around her to do more or, you know, have more, whatever it is. Yeah. Has it made it difficult to trust people? I think it's made me more aware of myself as a trusting person and someone whose default is to believe people. And I, I, I don't think that's unnatural. I think that's normal. But at the same time, I feel more aware of myself in that way. And I have to be, I try to be more careful, you know, and seeing the instances where I'm rationalizing other people's behavior or making excuses for them, especially if it's for one person again and again, I think that's now a red flag for me that it's a good indicator to step back and to to look at what's in front of me. And I don't know if it was, I think my Angelou said, when people show you who they are, believe them. That's paraphrased, but that's the gist of it. You know, people show you who they are, um, which is not to say that Anna showed me she was a con artist, but, you know, I think you, you can step back and reevaluate relationships in a way that's productive based on that uh, rule of thumb. So how would you say you have changed? Uh, I think I'm much more careful where I invest my time now. Um, I, I feel like in that friendship, you know, I, I don't have really re- regrets because I did what I did where I was at that time. You know, like I, that's as far as I had, as much as I learned, I like I did the best I could. But I, I think, you know, I, I there was a lot in the friendship. I, I felt like I enjoyed her company, but I also didn't feel like I was risking anything. She wasn't asking anything of me. And and I now see that my time and my attention were what I was investing and what I was kind of risking. And it's your trust is a precious thing. You got to be careful where you put it. Do you think there's any chance that she knew that Anna knew she'd get caught? Like, is there any chance this was part of some larger plan? I know I, I read she's actually planning on writing two memoirs. Um, and and actually publishing them when she gets out? Yeah, there are times I question whether or not Anna knew she might get caught and whether this was a part of her plan all along to achieve this kind of notoriety through this, the audacity of her crimes, like the flashiness of it. It's possible. It's possible. I I do think she certainly did things like the more dramatic and the, the bigger, the better. Maybe that's why. I think that calls into question, like, for me, there is this kind of, like, ethically gray cloud over this whole thing about the role of entertainment and the celebritizing of of con artist figures in our society today. Like, the fact that, you know, she was able to get a Netflix deal before her criminal trial and and got $30,000 before the trial began, which went directly to financing her criminal defense lawyer, who also represented her in her entertainment dealings. I mean, the DA's office stepped in after the trial so she couldn't get the remainder of the money from Netflix. But does that mean that individuals are incentivized to commit flashier crimes and then to seek their entertainment value in order to like finance their criminal defense and to achieve notoriety in the event they even are convicted. Like, is this, is this where we are? Like, is that what's happening here? You know, to 
romanticize these figures like Billy McFarland, Elizabeth Holmes, Anna Delvey, whoever it like that I think that's so dark because you know to to suggest that crime pays and and to give them this this treatment I think is dangerous. I think it shows young people that that kind of behavior is rewarded that there's this alternative track you can take to achieve, you know, it's not it's it's notoriety. I don't even know if fame is the right word. It's such negative uh, celebrity, but I think it's dark. Because the the behavior that they represent is just like callousness, greed, narcissism. It's like not, those aren't things to be celebrated as far as I'm concerned. Next week on What Really Happened, the season finale, a special two-parter. Malaysia Airlines Flight 370 was en route to China, and then it suddenly vanished. There is endless speculation about what really happened to Flight 370. I've talked to pilots, reporters, a woman whose mom was on the plane, and aviation experts. In our season finale, I'll tell you my theory. That's next week on our season three finale of What Really Happened. If you like the podcast, I'd humbly ask you to subscribe, rate, and review. It actually can make a big difference. For any other feedback, you can reach out to me on Twitter or Instagram, Facebook, at Andrew Jenks. Or go to jenkspod.com for more information on the sources for this podcast.